0: You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I think it's fair to say that you could not find a more troubling sentence in the whole of the Bible than this one that we read tonight. quote, David had said on that day, whoever wishes to strike down the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, those whom David hates. Now, I've spoken to this before over the years because I find it impossible to read such a passage, conclude with the word of the Lord, and then not say at least something. Well, tonight, I'm going to say a few somethings, which will hopefully help in wrestling with this and other similar sorts of texts. So first, a bit of context. We left off last Sunday with David's aching lament over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, after which he will begin to solidify his place as the new king of Israel, as the one who will be heir to King Saul. It begins with the tribe of Judah to the south, where he is very quickly anointed king, The ten tribes of Israel to the north, however, are not so clear about David's kingship. And soon a kind of war actually breaks out between Israel and Judah. There's plenty of intrigue and double-dealing behind the scenes, but in the end, the leaders of the northern tribes determined that it is time to throw in their lot with this new king of Judah. Judah which is where we picked up this evening. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Look, we are your bone and flesh. For some time while Saul was king over us, it was you who led out Israel and brought it in. The Lord said to you, It is you who shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, you who shall be ruler over Israel. It's notable that the image of shepherd is used here. You shall be shepherd of my people. Showing us that the arc of the Davidic narrative is from David as shepherd boy to David as shepherd king. And on this, Walter Brueggemann comments, quote, The use of the shepherd metaphor applied to David thus provides a critical criterion for David, who on occasion gives himself for his flock, and on occasion uses the flock for his own ends. Now that's a crucial observation, because it points to the fact that these texts will refuse to tell only the good stories of a good king but instead will insist on telling the whole, sometimes painful truth of the man. Now, having been anointed king over all the tribes, David sets out to establish for himself a capital city for this kingdom. In his tactical mind, David sees Jerusalem as the logical choice. It belongs neither to Judah nor to the tribes of Israel, So that's a prudent start. It's also clearly, formidably defended, which makes it a doubly attractive prize. The one issue, though, is that it is a city of the Jebusites, the Jebusites who inhabit that part of the land. Now, here we need to set aside our modern notions of nations with well-defined borders. Think more generally of tribal regions, that in the area where the tribes of Israel and Judah live, there is also a territory, a region inhabited by another people, complete even with a fortified city. It was simply a reality of those days which explains why there are so many battles and skirmishes in these stories. The peoples were living basically on one another's doorsteps, with land and settlements getting occupied back and forth over the years. Members of these tribal nations would also get absorbed into one another, depending on the movement of boundaries, which is how it is that Bathsheba, is married to Uriah the Hittite, a Hittite who also serves in what is clearly a fairly senior position in David's army. He has been absorbed. He's joined the other group. So, with his heart set on capturing Jerusalem, David finds himself taunted by the Jebusite leaders You'll not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, thinking David cannot come in here. Jerusalem was thought to have impenetrable walls, in other words, which virtually anyone could defend. David comes up with a plan to gain access via the water tunnel ordering the soldiers to attack the blind and the lame, those whom David hates. Now, does he, in fact, hate them? Or does he just resent the taunts that had been thrown at him by the Jebusite leaders? Hard to know the source of his hostility. But the text then does roll forward with this statement that, therefore, it is said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. It's just such a repugnant bit of Scripture, isn't it? Yet, the Bible is in this constant dialogue within itself, with some stories and teachings essentially calling out others. In this instance, just four chapters down the line from this taking of Jerusalem, we can read how David took Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, into his home, basically adopted him as his own son. Mephibosheth was lame. Having sustained a serious injury when he was five years old, fleeing for his life with his caregiver, right after his father Jonathan and grandfather Saul had died in battle. He's lame, but David takes him as his own. Further, according to the writer of First Chronicles, the reason David is prohibited by God from building the temple in Jerusalem is because he has blood on his hands. You shall not build a house for my name for you are a warrior and have shed blood. Think here of Walter Brueggemann's comment that David sometimes gives himself for his flock and on occasion uses the flock for his own ends. David's fierce and violent hatred can be seen as serving not the flock, but his own ends, and he's called on it. you got blood on your hands. And then consider the songs of the prophet Isaiah that emerge later in the story of Israel. Isaiah, whose dazzling imagination sees so far beyond a king who would prohibit the blind and the lame from entering the temple. In chapter 56, the prophet sings of how in the fullness of time, all people, and he specifically lists those of other nations, and those who are maimed. All people will be made joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now consider Jesus, who is called Son of David. His entire ministry is framed in terms of one of Isaiah's most dazzling songs. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's cited in Luke 4, but it's from Isaiah Far from hating the blind and the lame, Jesus reaches out to embrace and restore and heal. He, as the embodiment of the new temple, the new Jerusalem, the coming kingdom that is already among us yet still awaiting its fullness, will not exclude. The memorable phrase from Robert Capon Inclusion before exclusion is Christ's working principle. Inclusion before exclusion. It's most vividly illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son. There is but one great feast in that parable, and the father wants both of his sons to be at that party. The younger son is swept off his feet when he returns home with his cap in his hand, and the party is set in motion. The elder son, though, much as the father wants him there, excludes himself. He's resentful, jealous, and angry at his father's tolerance for that snotty little brother of his. And if that party is for that brother, then he wants no part of it. The parable ends with those famous words spoken father to elder son in the garden. Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And Jesus leaves the parable sitting there with the question, will the elder brother continue to exclude himself because he's meant to come in, meant to be included? That's what Jesus wills for the world. You see, some of the same principle at work in today's gospel reading. Jesus has gone back to his hometown of Nazareth and he's teaching in the synagogue. The response from those in his hometown when he starts to teach like that, who does he think he is? That's Mary's boy, the carpenter. He grew up down the street for heaven's sake. There are his sisters right over there. Pretty presumptuous to be teaching like he knows more than us. Which is followed by that startling line Jesus could do no deed of power there, except he laid hands on a few sick people and cured them. He could do no deeds of power there because most of them had excluded themselves by their outright dismissal of Jesus. What he wanted more than anything else was to include them in his acts of healing and restoration. Well, that's taken us quite a long way from the story of David conquering Jerusalem, hatefully ordering that the blind and the lame be attacked. But I really did need to make the point That while our scriptures can tell troubling stories about its heroes, those stories are only part of a much longer and larger story, one which continually critiques, counterbalances, and even refreshes itself with a good news far greater than any one troubling thing that David or anybody else might have said or done. Paraphrasing a sermon by the 18th century abolitionist preacher Theodore Parker, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Improvising on that quote, I would say that the arc of the biblical story is long but it bends hard toward grace, mercy, and inclusion. It does bend that way. It is bending that way. And therein lies our hope and hope for David, too. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.